Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic analysis of the most important legal topics of the day. We've gotten used in the last several months to saying it's been a blockbuster week, it's been a big week, but words kind of fail in describing these last several days. We have just for starters the historic transmission of articles of impeachment against President Trump and the initiation of the third ever presidential impeachment trial and the sort of historic procession from one side of Congress to the other. That's, you know, a huge event, but there have been six or more very significant developments, seemingly one or more per day. If Talking Feds were a newspaper, we'd have to publish a special thick supplement just to cover the very important and in some ways more provocative and nuanced other developments, such as the release of documents followed by long interviews from Lev Parnas, corroborating so many of the factual allegations against the president and adding some others. For example, the astonishing, if true, harassment of the ambassador Maria Yovanovitch, A determination by GAO that the president's whole campaign to withhold Ukraine aid was unlawful from the get-go. An assessment of Nancy Pelosi's sort of strategic call to withhold the articles for several weeks. Ukraine's opening a probe into possible surveillance of former U.S. Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. They get into the act from their side. The designation of the House managers and White House lawyers, including for the president, Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz. The ongoing political battle over whether to call witnesses at trial, which apparently is trending toward doing so. The debate over the role that Chief Justice Roberts will play at trial. The just-announced investigation of former FBI Director James Comey for a several-years-old leak. And the relationship of that investigation to others of Trump's political enemies, such as James Clapper, John Brennan, and Andy McCabe. You know, what a long and kind of breathtaking list. Where to start? Well, some quick introductions. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general, a current Washington Post columnist. We are joined, as Nicole Wallace might say, by a total all-star squad of Talking Fed's favorite commentators, all MSNBC political analysts too well-known to need lengthy introductions. We have Matt Miller, a partner at Novo and former director of DOJ's Office of Public Affairs, Joyce Vance, a professor at the University of Alabama Law School and former U.S. attorney and assistant U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama, and Natasha Bertrand, a.k.a. the Scoop Machine, the National Security Analyst for Politico. Let's just dive in and maybe have enough time to jam in an extra topic or two and starting with Lev Parnas. His whole account, how damaging was it overall? I mean, remember, we already had what seemed like a slam dunk case that the Republicans seemed impervious to. But does this and the GAO report move the needle at all 
given that it's the Republicans who are in charge? Anyone? Yeah, I guess I can I can start out with this one. It's clear that we have to take what Parnas has said with a big grain of salt because his lawyer did tell me that they're trying to get a cooperation deal with the feds. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the best way to go about it. Um, you know, you guys probably better know that better than I do, but they are trying to fully cooperate with House Intel and along with that, trying to get public opinion on their side as well. And part of that obviously is throwing these people under the bus, throwing Trump under the bus, Giuliani, Rick Perry, you know, all of these officials who were involved in some way with this scheme. So he has a lot of documents, obviously, to back up some of the things that he's been saying, you know, to the extent that he was an intermediary in this scheme between uh, Giuliani and Ukrainian officials. He has texts that make that very clear to the extent that there was a quid pro quo between the former Ukrainian prosecutor and uh, the president and his allies with regard to Biden dirt. His texts also make that clear. Joyce, you'd agree if he's trying to to uh, get promote a cooperation agreement with the SDNY, you know, it's one thing to give documents in, to Congress. It's another to go on MSNBC and CNN, right? This has to be the worst way to try to do it. It's certainly very unusual. You know, Harry, you and Matt and Natasha, too, know, like I do, that Southern District of New York is unique in cooperation agreements. And it requires that defendants cooperate, not just on the crimes that they're involved in, but they give prosecutors knowledge that they confess to any crimes that they've been involved in and that they know of. And often it's uh, particularly difficult. Witnesses will balk at giving up family members. So we know that Michael Cohen ran into some sort of a problem along these lines. It's entirely possible, I think, likely that Lev Parnas has a similar issue and that he's trying to find a way to become the, the unique sort of the unicorn cooperator in the Southern District who gets credit, even though there's some information he feels like he has to hold back. Although he might hope. I mean, I, it seems to me no way this endears him to the Southern District, but possibly besides the, the public support that Natasha uh, pointed out, um, Judge Etkin, who he's in front of, maybe somewhere down the line, Etkin, uh, you know, honors his kind of public uh, service or or whatever, and and maybe you know gives him his own sort of break. But I I can't see. I, I think he's burned his bridges with SDNY. Matt, what do you think? There's any chance he testifies at the uh, impeachment trial? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not sure he's the witness. If you if you gave Adam Schiff his his wish list right. of witnesses, I'm not sure Lev Parnas is the first one that he'd take. I think there are other people he wants first. Um, I do think, though, that he was fairly compelling and gave us a lot of new, interesting information. Natasha mentioned the the quid pro quo with um, the former corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor Lutsenko. I mean, it was it was it was pretty clear he outlined a deal, and and this was backed up by text messages right. that he turned over to the intelligence committee that they released. Where, and if 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 he was able to get the ambassador fired, Lutsenko would give uh, information. And it occurred to me watching him that there were really three quid pro quos that were at play. There's obviously the one that for which Trump has been impeached, um, you know, withholding the money in exchange for an investigation. 
There was this illegally. new one with Lutsenko, and then there were illegally, and then there was a third one that they tried to affect, wherein, um, in exchange for information from Dmitry Firtosh, this uh, Ukrainian oligarch who's under indictment in Chicago, if they th- that he would turn over information, and in, in return they would get those charges dismissed. Now. They were they were never able to deliver the the kind of Giuliani crowd were not able to deliver there into the bargain because Bill, Bill Barr wouldn't go for it, but the other two pieces they delivered pretty well, and I found that part of his his um his interview pretty compelling mainly because it was corroborated unlike some of the other stuff which was more in the realm of speculation. I think. Yeah, some of the I mean at least the big ticket items. My, Natasha, you've already reported that he hasn't been questioned at all about any of this, especially Maria Yovanovitch. You know, if any of his allegations about a surveillance and even a threatening posture toward a U.S. ambassador were right, we'd have a long string of crimes. And remember, it dovetails with Trump's telling Zelensky, you know, something creepy and sinister like bad things are going to happen to her. I think you talked to his counsel and said, you know, has the FBI come to talk to you about this? What did he report? Do I have that right, by the way? Yeah, yeah. So I had asked him because he had had to, basically his documents were seized. All of these text messages and documents were seized by the FBI months ago um, as part of this investigation, which he was indicted for. So they've had these texts for months now. um, And ultimately they were turned over to the House or parts of them anyway. But when I asked his lawyer whether or not the FBI had spoken to him specifically about these texts about surveilling a a sitting U.S. ambassador, they said uh, his lawyer, uh, Joseph Bondi, said that they had never interviewed him about that. They had never brought it up with him, which which I found pretty surprising. Yeah. I mean, Joyce, why why doesn't something like this prompt a criminal investigation, you know, even the appointment of a special counsel? Yeah, you know, it's hard to know what's going on inside of the Bureau. I suppose theoretically they could have something going, but we need to remember that we live in, um, I think, what's best characterized as a dysfunctional sort of an era among DOJ's leadership. Impeachment only reaches the president. So to the extent that there are any other criminal allegations that should be investigated against anyone else in the president's inner circle, one would expect that a special counsel would have already been appointed. It took Rod Rosenstein under 24 hours after Jim Comey was fired to bring on board a special counsel. There's precedent for that in other administrations. The fact that we're actually this far forward from the whistleblower complaint with, you know, Bill Barr obviously put the kibosh on any sort of internal DOJ investigation by very narrowly defining the crime as one involving campaign finance fraud, far be it from Bill Barr to appoint a special counsel. But if this was playing out the way any other similar public corruption case involving the White House has played out in the past, there would have been a special counsel appointed a couple weeks ago. I think Joyce is exactly right. But this this just narrow issue, even aside from the, the bigger issue for which I think there absolutely should have been a special counsel uh, appointed, this narrow issue of Lev Parnes and, you know, talking to this guy Hyde who was maybe surveilling, stalking the ambassador to Ukraine, the fact that they've had those text messages for months, presumably either when he was arrested on, I think it was October 9th or shortly thereafter, and they just searched his house and office on Thursday. The State Department said that it only began an investigation into it this week. What was going on inside the government? Pompeo was on the radio this morning and said he only found out about it when the news story broke. How is it true that the FBI and the Justice Department 
would have an allegation or have evidence, text messages that seem to show, and they, they may be wrong, the guy may be full of bluster, but at least it's worth investigating whether he was you know, surveilling a U.S. ambassador and they weren't investigating and it didn't make its way over to the State Department and the, the Secretary of State didn't know about it, that, that is unfathomable to me. I, I just can't imagine a situation like that when I was at the Justice Department, that that's not the kind of thing we both, number one, would have investigated immediately, and number two, picked up the phone and called the State Department and informed them. And I, I cannot imagine what the breakdown was that led to that only being investigated this it's week. It's so just, true. Just was to it? amplify what Matt's saying, if those emails had showed up in an investigation that you were conducting, if you had found them when you arrested somebody and searched, you would have taken them very seriously because you wouldn't know when you read them at first. You wouldn't have the Parnas interview with Maddow where he sort of blows it off. You would be focused on the ambassador's safety. Pompeo would have known. Everybody in the chain of command would have known. And he, uh, he Hyde, would have been interviewed immediately. So I think Matt is dead on the money here. Something was broken. And, and let's not forget this is a Secretary of State who rode to prominence uh, playing politics with the death of a U.S. ambassador. And, and for him to not know about it, and I don't blame him if no one told him that's not necessarily his fault. Maybe the Justice Department didn't tell State, but there, there is something wrong here. And uh, it, it, you know, incompetence may be the explanation more than malevolence, but there's something very, very wrong in the process. Yeah, I find it unfathomable, I, I guess is the right word, that it wouldn't have been sent around the basic threshold for predicate of a, of a criminal investigation is low. As Joy says, maybe it's wrong. You obviously have an investigate. And this kind of conduct toward a U.S. ambassador. Now, there have been a couple reports that have suggested that this was one of the reasons they squired her quickly out of the Ukraine to go back to Washington and be sacked by the president. But that would make it just worse if their reaction is, okay, well, let's get rid of her and forget about this crime. And Hyde, for those who you know don't, aren't remembering, is a very bizarre figure, Republican uh, candidate by Parnas's assessment, kind of a weird drunken figure. I mean, this is right. Look, an ambassador is bigger than a U.S. attorney. Joyce and I have been both. If something like that had happened, people, you know, marshals would have been insisting that we get protection right away and it would have been an all on criminal investigation. All right. And, and by the way, and just one more point about that. When that happens, of course, if there's a criminal investigation of this stuff, it really has a synergistic effect with Congress's work because people who are testifying no, they are under possible scrutiny for criminal conduct or for perjury. And this whole impeachment drama is played out in the absence of any backstop by the department that way. And, you know, Sondland, did he commit perjury? But we don't, you know, there's, there's a total hands-off attitude by the department overall, which changes the calculus for the average witness. All right. Uh, I think that's all we got time for on Parnas. Let's talk about witnesses generally. First, it does seem in the last 24, 36 hours, in large part because of Senator Collins, who is all of a sudden seeming, you know, her, her popularity ratings apparently have gotten lower than Mitch McConnell, looks more likely that witnesses, there'll be some witnesses at the impeachment trial. Do you, everybody share that assessment or how would you sort of book it at this point? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, um, but there may be some kind of deal made whereby the Democrats get 
a witness they want and the Republicans get one that they want. For example, you know, they're given permission to call someone like Hunter Biden. And in exchange, they agree to call John Bolton, who is just waiting for a Senate subpoena at this point to testify. But it's it's all very up in the air. And we're not we're not really sure at this point how many Republicans are going to break with um, really the majority leader because he, he doesn't want witnesses. Yeah. I mean, he says that he wants to wait until after the opening arguments, but it's pretty clear that he just wants us to go as fast as possible. So we're just waiting on those four and who they'll be. Uh, that seems right today, but I think it is a that is a very very much a, a decision that we made based on the politics of the moment. And if it, the politics of the moment right now, you saw Republican senators who were getting beaten up uh, for a few weeks over this, softening a little yeah. bit. Not most of them, but you could count your way to four this week. And if after the presentation of evidence by the House and the rebuttal by uh, the president's attorneys, if the politics are the same as they are today. I think that there will be witnesses and probably Natasha's probably right. It probably isn't just a straight up or down vote on, on each witness one by one. It may be that they work out a compromise. Although if I were Chuck Schumer, Mm -hmm. I may, I may resist a compromise and just make them vote down every witness gambling on the fact that more witnesses don't get me more votes to convict in this process. It's a rigged process anyway. So I'm going to make them all vote no and I'm going to use that against them rather than do some compromise where I bring Hunter Biden in who's completely irrelevant yeah. to the process. So the, so that's, I think, the, the dynamic that, that is a little bit hard to predict because this really, you could feel it this week, this is something that's kind of shifting and changing every day based on what kind of pressure senators think they're uh, did getting. I, I just want to make sure, did I understand? So what you're saying is Schumer, rather than cutting a deal... Uh, will bring up witnesses individually with the expectation of getting each of them voted down. That's no. Well, no, I look, I think there may be a deal. I I think there probably will be a deal. It's not just Schumer that other Democratic senators may want a deal too to do, you know, let's say John Bolton and Hunter Biden, something, something like that. That's the deal you hear talked about. But if I were in charge, I'd look at it and say, I want more witnesses if these witnesses are going to get me more votes. And I I don't know that a lot of Republican senators can. I mean, what more evidence do we need of what the president did? And I'm not sure other witnesses get more votes. So so, so I want want no deal and I want Susan Collins voting no and then I can run against her on it. That deal is a terrible strategic mistake because the Democrats are then conceding that Hunter Biden's testimony is relevant and that the president is entitled to present a defense of justification. He did what he did in Ukraine because he was investigating corruption. And that is a fundamental mistake. Democrats need to hold the line. It's both legal good sense and political good sense to say we're only interested in relevant testimony. There are only two issues in this trial. Did the president do the things that he's alleged to have done in the articles of impeachment? And if he did them, are they impeachable offenses? And anything else, whether it's, you know, Hunter Biden or Stormy Daniels or any (laughs) of these women who've made allegations about the president, they're all irrelevant. If you guys want to talk irrelevant stuff, we'll do that all day long. But we're here to consider articles of impeachment that's all. What about serving that very motion up to the chief justice? I mean, one of the things expressly he's supposed to rule on is is relevance. And, you you know, it certainly does seem to me under Hunter Biden never comes in in federal court. What a difficult position it puts him in to actually litigate it. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of 
uh, experts and, and watchers of the Supreme Court and of Chief Justice Roberts have said that he probably would not want this trial to devolve into a circus, that he probably would try to keep it relevant, to keep it moving, and not allow the whole thing to kind of go off the rails. So in that sense, you know, some have said that maybe he would um, vote the way, you know, be a tiebreaker in that sense. But but it's really it's it's hard to predict. Yeah. Basically, I don't think that they would risk that. I don't think they'd take that gamble. I think that they would just because it would be embarrassing for the Republicans. So I think the Republicans and Democrats will probably just try to work something out on their own. Yeah. And on that point, I do. So just a quick I mean, it is the Wild West with very little precedent. But let's say they're working that out on their own. And let's say we're talking at least first one witness on each side. And we there's separate arguments about Biden. Does, do all three of you think that the one card, if Dems have it, should be played for Bolton? I mean, I, I see some real weaknesses or, or uh, risks for him as a witness. Is there anyone else, if you had one witness card to play, that you would play it on other than Bolton? Probably yes, except I don't think you have any other cards to play. Yeah. I think Bol- Bolton is the only realistic witness that they can get, other than witnesses they've already had. Because let's look at the other witnesses who are on Schumer's list: Mick Mulvaney. Right. Let's. I'd love to. So, him. so yeah. the Senate's the the Senate subpoenas Mick Mulvaney. The president is going to resist that. He's not going to come testify. The president's going to claim privilege and it's going to get thrown into court. So I don't I, I don't know that there are a lot of other witnesses available to them, despite these demands for witnesses, a Senate subpoena doesn't necessarily get you a witness unless that witness is willing to come testify. And Bolton is the only one on that list of four who has shown any willingness to come. That's talk. true. Although they're also saying they're going to they're going to try to assert executive privilege even as to him. Yes. So do you see that scenario getting tied up in court as well? I think that's up to him. Look, you can't you you can assert executive privilege, but if he's willing to flout your instructions, I, I think theoretically you could go to court and ask for an injunction. But that sounds uh, that sounds like a real stretch to me. You can't you can't get an injunction to stop someone from publishing a book or from going on television and doing an interview. So I, I don't know how you would block them from coming and testifying. Geez, I don't know. Does any do you agree with that? I mean, it seems to me that that Trump holds the privilege. If there's a privilege, I don't see why Trump can't go in and say. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not it's not clear to me he would be able to go to court anyway, but I think he would have standing to say in the in the Senate or wherever the proper place is. This is my executive privilege and I'm, you know, I'm doing it to protect future presidents or whatever. I, I'm not sure it matters so much. Yeah, he can assert it, but he can't compel it. Matt's right. John Bolton could write an article for the, you know, the Atlantic and come in and, and read that in front of the Senate. And there'd be no executive privilege argument, I don't think. Trump could try to file something. I think a court would dismiss it pretty rapidly as frivolous. The one thing that I would add, if this was a criminal case and I was the prosecutor, sort of the littlest zebra that I would try to single out from the herd and see if I could obtain his cooperation would be former Governor Perry. I think that he had a lot of engagement, probably has a lot of risk, probably would like to find a safe harbor. It's unlikely that Congress can give him the assurances that a federal prosecutor could, but it would be interesting to see uh, if an exit ramp could be found that would permit him to testify. And then he would have the same, as, as Matt's pointing out, I think here, the same opportunity to decline to let the president use executive privilege to keep him from testifying. Yeah. I wrote about this this week. However they want to be toward the president, they they will be. And, you know, I, I, I really see your point, Joyce, although this is the guy who's basically 
what he called Trump the Messiah, right? I mean, man, oh man, the uh, it's hard to see him burying him. He did, but whether he wants to go to jail for yeah. the Messiah is another story, <laughs> okay, right? Exactly, the money lender. <laughs> All right, um, let's. Uh, let, I want to keep charging through. There's so much interesting stuff this week, and we. So you averted to his legal team. This, you know, we just got word. What do you What do you think about the appointment of Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz? As the president's attorneys, what's that about? Is it a publicity move? Is it the best, you know, legal counsel? How's it going to play out? Any thoughts about that? You know, I mean, it makes it sure a lot more soap opera like to have those two well-known characters. Yeah, I think that's the point. Obviously, he has people like Pat Cipollone and Jay Sekulow who are doing kind of the more heavy lifting on the defense part of this, the legal defense part of this. But the reason why he chose Dershowitz and um, Starr is, you know, not only do they have obviously extensive experience, but they also have extensive experience in television. And he very much wanted someone who would be able to put on a show and who would be able to make a an impassioned flamboyant argument on TV for why his conduct is not impeachable. And I think that's going to be the center of both of their arguments here. It's going to be not so much disputing the facts, but arguing that from a constitutional perspective, he didn't break any rules and he should not be impeached for, for what he did. You know, I agree with that, especially given that Starr in particular has essentially uh, conceded that the factual case is overwhelming. But to date, we've had this insistence from Trump, including yesterday, that, you know, I've just been impeached for a perfect call. And he's tried to hold the senator's feet to the fire of, of saying the facts are completely bankrupt. So it does seem that if Starr and Dershowitz get you somewhere in real argument, it's basically conceding the factual side and arguing about impeachability, no? And and we had heard to date the very notion of that infuriated Trump. I can't wait for one of them to go down to the Senate floor and make that argument and then for Trump to tweet uh, that they have it all wrong because <laughs> he's done that before. Yeah. I mean, just, just just two weeks ago, you know, his, his national security advisor said something about negotiating with the Iranians and he tweeted that his national security advisor was wrong. Um, so, it, it you know, it's happened many times. Uh, you know, it would obviously be the smartest argument for them to make because it gives the senators somewhere to go that's defensible. Right. I, I don't think it's a, a great argument. It's hard to argue why this isn't impeachable. But it's a much better argument than just saying fake news and attacking the media and attacking Adam Schiff, which is kind of all that he's given them to stand on now. And look, they all seem certain to to vote to acquit or almost all of them anyway. But he's asking them to take on a lot more political risk than if he had taken the Bill Clinton approach, which is to apologize, say, I'm not going to do it again, basically. Uh, but this isn't impeachable. Am I right that at the end of the day, they may have to answer to their constituents, but all they do is raise their hand one way or another? I mean, you could have a seemingly overwhelming case, but Starr and Dershowitz make some arguments for not impeachable. And then, you know, it's it's Lamar Alexander's turn. He just says, you know, acquit. I think that's all that sort of happens at the end, right? It, that's the only word. Yeah. It, 
It is, but they don't disappear from public right. life after that. You know, they still do interviews and town halls, and they, they they will be asked to explain their rationale at some yeah. point. Hey, so Joyce, I mean, you've been in big cases. I have too, and and you've you've had to make decisions about staffing. And it seems to me it's something you always do is there's just got to be a top dog in a in a trial. There's just somebody has to be the first chair, whoever, it is. and. I'm not sure you should be inviting Starr and Dershowitz to the same party that way. I mean, you know, it seems like a recipe, especially given their contrasting personalities for an, you know, internal bedlam in the team. Doesn't it seem like quite the odd couple to sort of head things up? It seems like uh, the kind of call that Donald Trump would personally make. I, I think that you're right. When you're staffing a big case, you know, you need what lawyers call a first chair, the person who's responsible for devising strategy, for dividing up responsibility, for getting the, the other lawyers on the team to each take charge of whatever lane they're assigned. But to bring in these two, you know, very senior uh, figures this late in the game is not something that indicates Trump has confidence in his team. And Dershowitz apparently has said he will, in fact, be testifying as opposed to participating as a lawyer. We'll have to see how that plays out. But this notion that he can go out and schwitz a little bit about ancient common law and what's a high crime and misdemeanor and all is forgiven, I think, uh, is certainly legally wrong and perhaps politically short-sighted, depending on how this plays out uh, in public. And they're just diametrically opposed um, stylistically. You know, I've debated them both. Dershowitz is so pugnacious and almost assaulting, and Starr is so genteel and cerebral. And, you know, it, it, it's all, it's almost like, you know, Mr. Heat and Mr. Freeze, whatever. It, 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 I just think it's a... It's a recipe for not having a cogent kind of theme or approach, even if they make nice to one another, which I think there's some reason to wonder about. It looks like the odd couple part two, right? The odd couple does impeachment. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk just for a few minutes about this, the new announcement that there is a probe underway or there seems to be it's a little murky is there a grand jury or not but of a leak by FBI director James Comey like years well Matt can you can you kind of basically you know just set up what the story is with this probe of Comey yeah so there was a report uh, first in the times and then matched by the post and probably I think some others as well that the Justice Department is investigating the leak two and a half years ago in two thousand and seventeen again first to the Times and the post report on the as well of this document that was sort of at issue in the two thousand and sixteen investigation into Hillary Clinton. It was a depending on the accounts you believe an account of kind of a, a fake email a manufactured email where Loretta Lynch said that she was never going to let Hillary Clinton be prosecutor, that she'd look out for her. It's believed to all have been manufactured by the Russians. It was, I think, disinformation. It leaked as an explanation for why Comey felt he needed to do the press conference on his own. And there's a long discussion you this could have the, on another podcast about this that. This is the infamous Just, October yeah, 2016. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's right. But I think the basic you know, issue is that the 
investigation appears to be targeting him and maybe one of his close associates as the source of that leak. And I think the odd thing about it is that, you know, usually leak investigations began immediately after the publication of, uh, of material, uh, of classified material. This one seems to have just started uh, maybe last fall. Obviously, the president has said that Comey ought to be thrown in jail many times. Um, it's weird for an investigation to start this late. And, and I think, you know, I'd love Joyce's opinion on this, but usually if you want to, uh, like I've, I've been involved in a, you know, much to my to my chagrin, and I have the scars to, to show it. I've been involved in a lot of leak investigations, and if you if you're going to take one to a jury, you want to have something you can show was a real harm uh, to the public. Uh, but you know that this disclosure caused a real harm to the public, and the idea that the leak of a document that's not even real, that was disinformation from the Russian government. I'm not even sure why it's still classified. The idea that they are investigating that and, and targeting Jim Comey for it seems to me very, very concerning. Now, I wonder, actually, I mean, Natasha, you're, you've got maybe the national security vantage point here. What's even the, yeah, you would think if they're the, 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 to justify this kind of very unusual late um, start and by the way, it's 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 not simply Comey. It would have, apparently that pe- there there were leaks uh, that the same information went to Congress. So it's going to be an impossible case to make. It would seem. But what's the big? I don't even understand the the argument of that that there's damage to national security here, which you would think would be really vital. Do you do you have a sense of what they're e- they're even trying to say? Um. So. My hunch is that part of the reason this document was so highly classified was because it came via a foreign intelligence partner. So I think it was the Dutch that first flagged Mm -hmm. this um, for um, national security officials here for the Bureau. So that so in terms of damaging our intelligence partnerships and potentially revealing information that maybe they didn't want to get out there for whatever reason, then I can see plausibly a justification for not wanting it to be out there. But just looking at it objectively, as Matt just said, it in and of itself, it it is very obviously, or let me phrase this differently. The Bureau determined pretty early on and pretty quickly that this was Russian disinformation. It wasn't that. And what do you mean exactly by that? You mean the actual document was was of Russian origin? That it was doctored, right? So they basically manufactured an email exchange between two people. I think it was between um, two Democratic staffers. I can't. Yeah, well, I can't remember at the moment. Um, but basically, yeah. saying that that DOJ had rigged the the Hillary Clinton investigation, and it, Jim Comey did not make. The decision that he did, um, because, you know, he, he thought that this was real, you know, you know, taking away the, the ability of DOJ to announce the closing of the investigation. He took it because he was worried that this document would leak. And even though it wasn't authentic, it would still look like, you know, it, it, certain people wouldn't be convinced, right? So, so, it, I mean, there is no real, national security damage that is done by the public knowing about this document. But I can see them arguing that it came from a foreign intelligence service. Therefore, we want to protect it. You know, what bring this brings to mind the entire we've gone back and forth with the entire um, beginning of the Russian probe. And it's it's in the same way to have the same kind of genesis, although that ha- certainly hasn't stopped the, you know, 
Republicans in in Congress from supposedly um, uh, trashing it and revealing it. This brings us to the end and our normal five words or fewer. And given this last topic, I'm going to play this dealer's choice and serve up to the feds a question to answer in five words or fewer that kind of, that grows out of this probe we just heard about from Comey, which again is of a piece with the, you know, a probe Trump's political enemies. So for Matt Joyce and Natasha here, the question to answer, please, in five words or fewer is, who among Comey, Brennan, Clapper, and McCabe will be indicted, and if indicted, convicted? None. No one. None of them. <laughs> Nobody twist in the wind. Okay. Man, what a what a crazy week, and next week portends more. Thank you very much to the fantastic trio of Natasha, Joyce, and Matt. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Or check out Patreon.com slash TalkingFeds, where we post exclusive additional material for supporters of this podcast. Um, submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. A follow-up on there, we've the questions that, that are sort of relevant now have changed a lot since it was the Mueller days, and want to encourage everybody who has questions to please submit them to five words or fewer. We want to replenish the stock and really be focusing on the questions that you most want to see answered. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.